Philippus FM. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, "Let there be light." And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Welcome to the first season of the Creation Stories. In this season we're going to tell the story of creation as it was first told to me, and probably as you first heard it too. The story found in Genesis, with a few details in the Quran and Abrahamic tradition, is significant in one way or another to over 4 billion people. To help me tell the story, I've interviewed three religious leaders: a Jewish cantor, a Muslim imam, and a Christian priest. And I interviewed an Assyriologist to provide some historical context. I cannot wait to share this with you. So without further ado, let's get into these stories. My name is uh, Cantor uh, Russell George Jane. I am the uh, the cantor and the spiritual leader here at Bethsedek Synagogue, and pretty much I go by Cantor Russ. In Judaism, we have two creation myths, and they take up the first, I would say, three to four chapters of the Book of Genesis. The first creation myth is the seven days of creation. That's the creation story that we all know and uh, sort of have a, a cultural familiarity with. The second creation myth is the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. Both of them are unique, separate, and distinct creation myths. They've been brought together in the Torah, but they serve. Unique and different purposes, and the fact that the Torah has decided to bring them together, and then the specific order in which they're read, with the creation story of the seven days of creation coming first, speaks to how Judaism wants us to see God, the universe, and then humanity's relationship to God and the universe. But they are two distinct myths because God is addressed distinctly. Within each of the stories, in the first story, God is referred to exclusively as Elohim, the Hebrew word for God in general, which can refer not only to our God but also to any God,、uh, because Judaism of in the Torah, we are not specifically monotheistic. So we, at least at that point, so we have the word for just God in general, Elohim. That's how God is addressed in the first creation story, the seven days of creation. But then, in the second creation story with the Garden of Eden, God is referred to as Adonai Elohim, which implies a sense of intimacy. And as we talk about the two stories, we'll see how that、uh, works out within the confines of each story. But there are two distinct representations of the creation. Growing up, I always had these two myths taught to me as if they were one story. God created everything, and on the sixth day, God created Adam and Eve. On the seventh day, God rested, and while God rested, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. And the next day, God came down to chastise them and kick them out of the Garden of Eden. Now, I'm not sure if it was explicitly taught that way, or if that was just kind of me combining the two in my head. Regardless, it was cool to be shown the clear distinction between these two myths. In this first one, the seven days of creation, God is far more transcendent. 
God is over the face of the waters. And in the second, we get a little more personal contact with both God and humanity. We're going to explore both in this season of the creation stories. But throughout this first week, we'll have a new episode every day, one for each day of creation. Now, before going on, I want to be clear. I'm not using the word myth as a pejorative. One of our guests explains this really well. So I'll let her introduce herself, and then she'll get into what we mean by myth. My name is the Reverend Natasha Brubaker Garrison, and I am an ordained priest in the Anglican tradition known as the Church of England in the United States. It's the Episcopal tradition here in Canada. It's the the Anglican Church of Canada. And so the proper way to address me is not reverend, actually. Uh, Technically, it would be mother, but that just brings to mind mother superiors and nunneries, and that is not (laughs) where uh, where that, that would not be an accurate or illuminating way to describe me. So my first name is what I prefer. And so um, that, that is what I would invite you to use is just my, my first name, Natasha, is a, a lovely way to go. So I love stories. Stories are amazing. Stories tell us in poetical and metaphorical and language of image truths about who we are and the questions we have as people, that just the whole experience of, of being alive. So stories are foundational to how we understand ourselves and apprehend the world, try to understand why, where, what, all of those amazing things and the questions that we hold deep. And so the the creation story in Genesis is an incredibly complex, wonderful tale, an ideological tale, tale of origin. And myth, I think, is a word just to start that we also need to reclaim. We can use it as a very pejorative term. So myth is something that's just fake, it's false. It's just a story. But again, as I said, stories are incredibly powerful. So even if it is just a story, that does not mean there is no value in it. In fact, it can have tremendous value. But a myth is more than a story. Myths tell in story form deep human truths. And so while it may not have exactly happened in a factual way, like there, you know, if, if you looked at it as a documentary, it wouldn't have been folded exactly as it's written. It is still true. The the core of the story, the meaning, the point, the idea, the experience it's trying to capture is deeply true to our lived human experience. And I think another way to maybe grasp what I'm saying about myth is to think of great stories, great literature across the the centuries. And, And you could pick any text, but the one that I tend to go to is the story of Hamlet by Shakespeare. There was never a Prince Hamlet. That story that Shakespeare tells did not factually happen, but it is so true. The struggles that happen in that story and what it teaches us about power and our personalities and and all the things that are in that story of Hamlet are true things about being human. And so that's a myth. And and this story is, is a myth in the richest, most wonderful sense of a myth. I brought Islam, Christianity, and Judaism together in this season because the stories are similar. Judaism and Christianity essentially use the same text for these stories, but Islam tells it a little differently. I'll let a resident imam introduce himself and then explain a couple differences and similarities he sees. My full name is Sayyid Hadi Hassan, and my title is Imam, and you can address me by Imam. Imam. 
or by Sayyid or by Hassan. We are at the Husseini Association of Calgary, which is located in Southeast. This is a mosque, or in other words, it is an Imam Barga. It belongs to, in fact, all the Calgarians, but generally Muslims attend the center, and specifically Shia Muslims attend the center. Other denominations also attend our gatherings, and they are fully uh, permitted and welcome to attend our gatherings and uh, pray in their own way if they wish. So I am completely unfamiliar with how the Quran tells the story of creation. Would you mind getting into that uh, a little bit and, and filling us in? What does the Quran say about creation? There are not uh, much details. There are details, but not in terms of uh, step by step. They are not uh, divided. Like in Christianity, on first day, uh, in Bible, God created on the first day this and second day this. No, yeah. there is no division. It's uh, God created everything in six phases, in six stages. Uh, then definitely the creation was made. And we don't have any such explanation as in Bible that uh, then on seventh day God rested. No, we don't have that. Creation story uh, in Islam is pretty much similar to the Judaism and Christianity. And not only creation story, there are a lot of similarities between Islam and these two religions, Judaism and Christianity. Because we believe that same God, we don't believe in multiple gods. We believe there is only one God who has created the whole world. And the same God who created the whole world sent various messengers. And one of them was Moses, peace be upon him. Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. And then the same God sent Prophet Muhammad as the final messenger. So the messages are similar because the person who has sent the messages, the messages where they are originated from, the source is the same, who is Allah, God, Bhagwan, whatever you call in different languages, but that is the same. So as the source of the messages is the same, messages have a lot of similarities, especially these three religions which are called Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. When I started this project, I really had no idea how Islam told the creation story. Naively, I kind of just thought it would be the same as what's found in Genesis. I'm glad Imam Saeed was so happy to educate me. My hope for this whole project is that we can all find a greater appreciation for cultures, stories, and the people who identify with those cultures and stories. Something that can really enrich our appreciation for these stories is context. Dr. Josh will introduce himself here and then provide some context for where these stories came from. Now, if you could give me your full name, your title, and what exactly it is that you do. Sure. Uh, Joshua Aaron Bowen. Uh, I have a PhD in Assyriology from Johns Hopkins University with a minor in Hebrew Bible. And my wife and I run a YouTube channel called Digital Hammurabi. And we focus uh, primarily on linking up reputable scholars in the fields of ancient Near Eastern studies, including biblical studies, with interested non-specialists. I've got you here on to talk specifically about the history of the archaeology, what we know, what we, what we can see, and how we can see it based on 
our whatever evidence we've managed to to figure out. And so this creation story, maybe maybe let's make the distinction here first between the two creation stories, between the story of Adam and Eve and the the story of the seven days of creation. Is there a difference in like where we can tell they come from or is it kind of this identical origin? What's your take on that? You know, tons of debate about things like dating, which one came first? Did one use the other? Did they even know about each other? All that stuff is uh, under contention among scholars. So there are people that would say, no, uh, these are independent traditions, independent stories, and neither author or group of authors knew about the other story. Others would say, no, Genesis you know, 1 came first, and then Genesis 2 and 3 came later, and others would say the reverse. So this is a an area of specialization in biblical studies. People, I mean, spend their entire careers debating this stuff. I tend to think that Genesis 1 came last, and that's that's pretty common in the field to think. Whether Genesis 1 knew about 2 and 3 when it did its writing, I tend to think that it did, but I mean, you know, again, people like Joel Baden would disagree with me, and Joel Baden knows a lot more about it than I do. So, but, you know, they're, they're definitely... Consensus among scholars is that there are two different creation accounts. And what I what I mean by that and what they mean by that is that it's it's not intended, you know, one person didn't sit down and write Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4a, and then, you know, or 2, 3a, I can't remember where it breaks. Uh, and then, you know, another, or the, the same one, right, you know, wrote just in a different way, 2, 3b and following. Scholars are almost unanimous on this. There are some evangelical holdouts that would, you know, say, well, you know, it's, we think it's still written by the same person, but they're, in, I mean, in the vast minority. And, and you can see it in its content. You can see it in uh, the flow of the narrative itself. They're very different stories. They're very different approaches to the creation account. You know, Genesis 1 is far more, trans- God is far more transcendent. You know, he's, it's, it's, it's very much a top-down approach to creation. Whereas in Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden story, you know, God sort of is far more anthropomorphized. He kind of does some trial and error, you know, in the in the creation process. And again, there are people that would, you know, there are scholars, reputable scholars that would debate that. Again, dating, a lot of this depends on so- somewhat nuanced arguments. Uh, but, you know, what everybody agrees on and has agreed on for probably close to, I don't know, several centuries now, is that these are two different accounts, right? Written by two individuals or groups of people. So that was a very broad look at the academic analysis of the text. We're not going to dive too deep into analyzing the text, maybe in a future bonus episode, though. For now, suffice it to say that from both a religious and academic standpoint, we have two distinct stories. This distinction will become particularly important as we review what each of these stories means for us. Now, I know introducing you to four guests like that can be a little overwhelming. Don't worry, though, these are the only four guests on this season. Cantor Russ, a Jewish cantor, Natasha, a Christian priest, Imam Saeed, a Muslim imam, and Dr. Josh, an Assyriologist. So, two distinct myths, many deep human truths, and some historical anthropology along the way. That's what you can expect from this season of the creation stories. Now, with all of that context, 
Let's get into the first story, the seven days of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So the first is the story that we're all familiar with. So it opens up in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness. God saw the light and said that it was good, and then we have a cycle, evening and morning. So what is the first thing that God does? Well, on the first day, God hovers over all of the chaos and God says, let there be light. And the first thing that's created is light in contrast to darkness. Those are the first two things sort of separated out of the chaos and then separated from each other. And so we have light and we have darkness. And this is seen of as what the rabbis call the great primordial light that just sort of permeated all of the world. And of course, then that light will also be shaped and formed later on in creation. But right now, you just sort of have this grand separation between light and darkness. So that's our first day. In Christianity and Judaism, we have these clear markers of what happened each day of the creation. But in Islam, we see it divided into six stages, with less specificity as to when each thing was created. The first seven episodes of the season will cover the creation as described by Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, but we'll be using the framework of the Hebrew Bible. So remember, when we bring up how Islam sees the creation of animals in episodes 5 and 6, that's because that's where Christianity and Judaism put them, and Islam doesn't have the same rigid framework for what transpired each day. Keep that in mind as we continue. There are descriptions in Quran, and they are very beautiful, but there is, in fact, a great Islamic figure called Imam Ali. He is uh, one of the disciples of Prophet Muhammad and one of the main authorities of Islam. I would say, after Prophet Muhammad, he is the most important authority and representative of Islam. When it comes to knowledge, Prophet Muhammad used to say, I'm the city of knowledge, and he is my gateway, the gateway to that city. And his name is Ali. So Imam Ali, who lived during the time of Prophet Muhammad, definitely he survived after Prophet Muhammad, and he led the Muslim Ummah after Prophet Muhammad. There is a book called Nahju Balagha, The Peak of the Eloquence. That book is divided into three parts. His sermons, his letters that he wrote, and his short maxims and sayings. That book begins with a sermon. So the first sermon of the book, that is dedicated to the creation of the world. And here he has, in fact, summarized the Quranic verses and the Quranic teaching or the Islamic perspective about the creation of the world. He initiated creation most initially and commenced it originally. So it was not the case that 
like we, when we want to invent something or create something, we need to have some samples. But there was no sample. And God didn't need any sample. When God intends to do something, only when He intends to do something, that becomes. Or as Quran says, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when God the Almighty wants to create something, He says, kun, be, and it becomes. So it's not the case that God needs to involve physically and do some labor works and uh, do some planning and uh, implement his plan. No. When God intends to create something, he says, be and it becomes. And in fact, be, he says be, this is also only for us to be able to understand. Otherwise, he doesn't even need to say be when he intends for something that becomes. So he says he initiated creation most initially and commenced it originally without undergoing reflection, without making use of any experiment, without innovating any movement, and without experiencing any aspiration of mind. Before we had, for example, land, heavens, and earth, and everything, Allah says everything was one. They were not separate. It was not the case that, that uh, the earth was separate, the heavens were separate. No, everything was one. Kanata ratqan. They were one, merged into one another. Fafataqnahuma. Then we separated them. Then we split them. That is really the major underlying message of that first creation story. You may think things are chaotic. You may think that the world doesn't make sense. You may think that things just happen by complete random happenstance. No. God ordered the chaos. God separated things into their appropriate places so that they could flourish within creation. And as a result, the world is a place that you can know that you can appreciate. And God actually wants us to know and appreciate it because if we do that well, then we will be able to have a deep relationship with divinity, however we define it. So if you're looking at the creation story to you know, teach you about how the universe literally came into being, no. But if you want to know what the place of humanity is in this world, which is to study creation, to learn about creation, to steward creation, then you're going to have purpose in your life. Order out of chaos. This will be an ongoing theme for us. These myths tell deep human truths. The stories themselves might help people order the chaos of their own lives. Now, let's put this idea of order out of chaos into context. These stories seem to come together around the time of the Babylonian exile. And there was a reason. So people are, are forcibly moved into another culture. There's pressure to assimilate. There's the stories and the myths of those people. The, the creation myth of ancient Babylon was utterly different from this one. Now you see common threads. So there's Tiamat. And, then the, and in the ancient Hebrew, the, the root for the word the deep is actually related entomologically to Tiamat. Um, but so Tiamat was the forces of chaos, particularly the water. And the story of creation, the Babylon myth, it's, it's so different. So Tiamat and Ea, 
create all these gods. It's this big, ugly, nasty family affair. And basically her grandson, Marduk, slaughters her, rips her body apart. Part of her becomes the ocean. The other part becomes the sky. Again, order out of chaos. But it's based on this act of extreme violence. And the world is not created in this this way that is, it's good, it's blessed. And humans are created from, let me make sure I get this right, because I do not want to get it wrong. So Marduk's not done when he kills Tiamat, right? He goes on to kill her son, Kingu, and mix his blood with earth to create humankind. Very different story, right? And and humans, it's, it's not about being in relationship with this ultimately benevolent and caring and compassionate God. Like it's kind of like the byproduct of this big, huge, ugly battle among the gods. And, and humans aren't like, oh, you're made specially in God's image. And it's based on violence and bloodshed and destruction and the ripping apart and imposing order through violence. This myth is so different. And I think it was meant to be like, I don't think it was invented at that time, but it was like our story of of creation is so different and we better codify it, put it into this beautiful poetic language to stand in juxtaposition to this myth. And this is what it means to be a human. I am made in the divine image of God, a God that there is an intention and not this story. Our myths matter so deeply. And I think it's in, it's really important to, to draw that connection, but also that juxtaposition between these, these sort of two styles of, of creation myths or these two versions of creation myths that were existing in that part of, of the world and, and how they, they played off each other, but also went in very different directions. And nothing in the creation story is ever labeled bad. Everything is labeled good. God saw it and said that it was good. So creation is a blessing and all of creation is considered a blessing, a gift, something for which to be thankful, something that gives good things. So I think that's a very important theme. You'll remember Dr. Josh mentioning he believes the story of the seven days of creation came after the Garden of Eden story. I asked him to expand on his reasoning. One of the reasons that I think, I I tend to think, that Genesis 1 knows about Genesis 2 is this declaration of everything being good and then everything being very good. You know, if you think about the, the purpose of the primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, it's showing the downfall of humanity time and time and time again. Whereas in many of these other ancient Near Eastern stories, it's not man that's necessarily bad. The gods are kind of capricious. The gods do things that are kind of tricky. And I think Genesis 1 through 11 is reacting to that. And so I I do think that, you know, this aspect of things being good, created good, you then move into Genesis 2 and following, and you you see this sort of downfall in the narrative. And I think probably, or perhaps, again, nobody should go quote me on that because it's not, it's a very specific area of expertise, but I tend to lean that way because I think that Genesis 1, the priestly writer is, is sort of setting this up that you know, as sort of the uh, the introduction, maybe, to this. It's getting ready to go downhill, but God created it good. God creates everything good, and we tend to mess things up. 
If you're listening to this, you've probably seen people do a lot of questionable things. I mean, heck, you've probably done questionable things yourself. I know I have. But we also have a really positive role to play in creation. We'll be getting more into that in future episodes. Since we're focused on the creation itself, we're focused on the good. But that doesn't mean everything's just peachy. Throughout this story and this podcast, we're working with chaos. We're trying to sort order out of chaos. To do that, we're going to rely on a lot of interesting history and a bunch of interpretation. In the intro, I mentioned there are over 4 billion combined adherents to Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. For this podcast, I've interviewed three of those adherents. So, yeah, thank you for listening, and I hope you stick around for the whole season and future seasons. But if you really want to find a greater appreciation for cultures, stories, and people, look around your community and ask them about their stories. I want to end with something Cantor Russ said. One of the inherent qualities of Judaism that we are taught is that we must question everything. We don't take things just solely on faith. We are meant to question and to look at various sides of the same story because, again, our ancient rabbis tell us that the Torah is like a diamond, and just as a diamond has many facets, but it's all part of the same diamond, and the more facets a diamond has, the more beautiful it is, and the more light it can reflect. So the Torah has, they say symbolically, 70 facets or 70 faces. Really, that's just a number that means a lot, right? And the more interpretations you can give to the Torah, the more ways of looking at the Torah increases the amount of light the Torah can bring to the world. And so, yeah, you have many, many different opinions, and the rabbis agree with each other, they don't agree with each other, but all of these opinions are recorded, and they're part of our history. So you can have many, many different viewpoints as to what the creation story means, what the different days of creation stand for, the different symbolisms, and Again, it adds to the beauty of the Torah. Thank you for listening to and supporting this program. Yes, the show is over. Well, this episode anyways. But there are a ton of people who have helped make this project happen. So I'll invite you to stick around for the credits. First, a huge thank you to those of you who support this podcast and the rest of my work on Patreon. If you'd like to become a supporter, it's the first link in the show notes you'll get a thank you postcard from me and a bunch of bonus content. The Creation Stories is a production of Polytropus FM. I, Alex Williams, wrote, produced, hosted, and edited this episode. Our guests include Cantor Russell Jane, Imam Saeed Hassan, the Reverend Natasha Brubaker Garrison, and Dr. Joshua Bowen. If you'd like to get in touch with any of our guests, see their work, or support them, I put links in the show notes. Specifically, Dr. Josh has recently published The Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, which I think will broaden your appreciation for these stories, regardless of your background. If you're in the Calgary area, I highly recommend you visit calgaryinterfaithcouncil.org to see how you can get involved in the local interfaith community. There will also be updates available there on the upcoming UN World Interfaith Harmony Week. Special thank you to Rob Faulkner, Matt Baker, Dalton Harding, and the Calgary Interfaith Council for connecting me with guests and additional resources. Thank you to Garrett Vandenberg for creating our theme music. He's also done the original music for My Wax Museum and Polytropus, so I highly recommend you check out his work. And thank you to Bethany Gustafson for our show cover art. A full list of sources and credits can be found in the show notes. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.